Well, it's been said that the Oregon Trail is the nation's longest graveyard. Of the estimated 350,000 people who set out, 30,000 never reached home. That's an average of 10 to 15 deaths per mile. This was due to exhaustion. The limited diet they had led to things like disease, inexperience with the wagons, crossing rivers, caused numerous accidents, and the elements themselves tore through the wagon trains. Rains that flood and apple-sized hail and unpredictable grass fire. One man wrote in the St. Joseph Gazette, quote, To enjoy such a trip, a man must be able to endure heat like a salamander, mud and water like a muskrat, dust like a toad, and labor like a donkey. He must learn to eat with his unwashed fingers, to drink out of the same vessel as his mules, to sleep on the ground when it rains, to share his blanket with vermin, and to have patience with mosquitoes. To travel the trail was no easy journey. You see, the pilgrim, passing on his way, he had to have the right mindset, and he had to have the right hope. Now, that's true for those in this room this morning, because all Christians are pilgrims, passing through this life to a final destination. To live the Christian life, we must pass through this foreign land, this place that is not home. And let me tell you, you know it's no easy journey. The Apostle Peter writes to Christians suffering for their faith, and if they are to make it, if we are to make it, we need to know how to stay on the trail, how to endure and how to persevere and how to stay healthy. Well, this morning, Peter gives us two commands to traveling well. This message comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. It's verses 13 through 16. And God speaks to how we travel. As we read this, it'll come off like a series of commands, somewhat rapid fire, one after another. But there are two imperatives in this passage and only two. And what happens here is that Peter will support them by telling us how to do them. The verses we read circle around these two commands. The first is verse 13, fix your hope. And the second is verse 15, be holy. So as we read this, keep in mind those are the two driving commands of our passage. Everything else fills it in. It tells us how to do that. Verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
to travel the trail well, fix your hope on future grace. It's our first point this morning, verse 13, to travel the trail well, fix your hope on future grace. We might even say fix your hope on the salvation to come. But we're going to begin this morning with this text, not looking at the text before us, but looking backwards. We're going to consider all that's been said in 1 Peter chapter 1, those first few verses. And we do this because of the first word. The word therefore is like a stop sign. If we're reading along and we encounter a therefore, we want to slow down. We want to adjust that that rear view mirror and see what has come behind us. We want to look back and, and consider where we've been in our reading. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, our author begins issuing commands. These are imperatives. He's going to keep going with this throughout the letter. They are a call of what to do, what you and I should do. But for the Christian, what we do always follows what's been done. One commentator said it this way, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. That means before we do, we consider what God's done. Now this is very important. Imagine for a moment if we get that switched around. If we reverse that order, we walk into a works righteousness salvation. If the order begins with me doing, with my works or my effort, if my hope is that God responds to them, I'm in big, big trouble. You see, salvation begins with God. It begins with what God does. And that's why the imperatives always follow the indicatives. And that's what we see in Peter this morning. Now, an indicative is is simply a fact. It's a statement of fact. It's stating something God has done. An imperative is a command. It's it's something that we do. And imperatives follow indicatives because we respond to what God has done. In verse 13, the word therefore connects the two. It connects the two sections, the indicatives that came before and the imperatives which come now. What did Peter just write about? Looking back at verses 3 through 12, Peter writes of our salvation. God chose, God sanctified, God gave mercy, God caused new birth, God reserved an inheritance, God protects, God did this in the past, he sent prophets who served you, God does it in the present, he grants joy, God will do it in the future, Christ will be revealed, therefore, as a result we respond. You are to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought. That is the first command. That is the first point. But there's a lead up to that. Peter introduces this first command with two ways to do it. And we're going to follow that logic this morning. How do I fix my hope, Peter? Well, we begin by preparing our minds for action. And if you're tracking along in verse 13, you see this comes up almost immediately. 
preparing your minds for action, and then keeping sober in spirit, fix your hope. Now, prepare your minds for action is literally translated girding up the loins of your mind. Now, you and I aren't accustomed to talking that way, I don't think. We don't often throw those words around. Uh, My son was playing soccer yesterday. He was the goalie. I didn't yell that from the sideline. But our English Bibles help us out, and that's why the translations are a bit different, like preparing your minds for action. It, It captures the essence of that command. In fact, if you have a King James Bible or a King James, a New King James, it's probably going to retain that translation, girding up the loins of your mind. What's going on with this? Well, going back to Bible times, someone would wear a a long robe, a long piece of clothing. And if there was some work to do, if there was some serious work to do, or there was some some preparation needed, they would tie that robe up around a, a, a waist belt. It's this girding up of the loins. And that way, that person is more free to move. There's a freedom of movement there with the legs. There's a readiness or a preparation involved. The legs are are limber. They're free. And just to give you a couple of examples to help solidify this in your mind, back in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah goes on this 25-mile sprint. Well, he girds up his loins before he runs. Elisha, in 2 Kings, needs a delivery to happen very quickly. The command is to gird up your loins. And in Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites are to eat their Passover, girding up their loins. It was important for them to faithfully obey God and to be ready to go. Well, what Peter does here is he grabs a hold of that imagery and he applies it to the mind. Gird up your loins, prepare your mind. You see, a fixed hope begins with the mind. The Christian mind must be be ready to think. You and I must be ready to think, not merely believing everything that comes along the way, not just accepting things, not buying into every passing wind. The mind must be ready to think and to think critically, to think biblically about what we experience and what we hear. The Christian mind must not be easily distracted. There are numerous distractions in our lives. There are idols and desires, and they're elbowing one another to come in and and get our attention, to implant themselves in our minds and to be given center place in our lives. The Christian mind must be prepared now. It must be prepared now and fixed upon what is to come. We can't be taking all the alluring side trails and and detours in this life. And the Christian mind, as we've learned, must consider what's been done for it. These are verses 3 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1. The indicatives, the, the facts of your salvation. Think thoughts of God. To say it another way, successful Christian living begins with the mind. The mind is a door. The mind is a gate. You and I are to be watching the door. 
allowing some things to come in and refusing others. That's why, by the way, we do what we do here on Sunday mornings. That's why when you come in here, I don't want to waste your time. We are preparing your minds for action. We preach sermons from a pulpit. I don't have very inspiring pep talks. I can't offer that. The goal for you is to come in and eat from a very large meal. I'm trying to give you fat portions. I don't want you to trim on the carbs when you come in here. I want you, when you leave here, needing to unbuckle your spiritual belt loop a few loops. That's the kind of feeding we need at our churches, where we are digesting big portions. We're talking buffet style. And we are well fed because we need it. Our minds need that, preparing our minds. Peter gives us a second means on how to, to fix our hope, girding the loins of our minds or preparing our minds. He says, secondly, keep sober in spirit. The original is even more concise. He says simply, be sober. Now, in our culture, when we hear sobriety, we think immediately of of intoxication or or drunkenness, and it, it certainly means that. It means at least to that. But in the time in which Peter wrote, this word meant, meant things even more broadly than that. It has to do more broadly with a self-control, a restraint, a clear-mindedness. The English might say it this way. They would say, the chap keeps his wits about him. And Peter's going to dispense this same charge. He's going to do it again later. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, he'll come back to this idea of sobriety or clear thinking. It's necessary in in spiritual attacks. In chapter 4, verse 7, he'll say, Be of sober spirit, or be sober, for the purpose of prayer. In chapter 5, verse 8, he'll say it again, be of sober spirit, for the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. In our passage, we're to be sober to fix our hope on the grace to come. And just as alcohol can numb or it can fog or it can impair one's ability, so too can the world come along and cloud the mind if we're not being sober, if we're not staying clear-minded, if we are not alert. That takes effort to keep the mind fixed on the right thing. And again, the world wants to open wide that door and that gate to your mind, and it wants to welcome, it wants you to welcome in all kinds of things, all kinds of things to distract. It wants you to put your hope in other things even good things that God has created good. The world's going to come along and tell you that you need a little break. You just need to relax your mind. You're due for a break to take just a little nap. After all, you work hard, Christian. And there are many good things to attend to, so the world will say. We might even agree there are good things to put our hope in. Things like our family. We need to invest in our families. Family is so important. Family is number one. The family wouldn't be what it is without me. There's things like our careers. God made us to work after all. And the more we work, the more we earn, the more we can give. That's a great place to use my mind. 
about retirement. You're entitled to a break. You deserve it. You've worked your whole life. Now it's time to just relax, relax your mind, to dig those toes in the sand and to pull that hat down. And slowly, quietly, subtly, over time, something else becomes our hope. Our minds become fixed on other things. Many good things even, but most of all, the call here is to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. In other words, to complete the journey, we need to see the end. A firm vision, it needs to reside in our minds and our, our hope must be fixed fully upon that. And you hear that word hope in here, just to be clear, this hope that he writes of, this is not some kind of, of a wish This isn't the kind of hope where you cross your fingers. This is a confident assertion. This is an absolute guarantee that Jesus Christ is going to come back. I mean, we're not rolling dice here. We are absolutely certain. That's the kind of hope Peter writes of. It has this future aspect, doesn't it, our salvation. We've discussed this already in 1 Peter, that we've been redeemed, we've been saved in the past, and that God is saving us, We're working out our salvation, but there's this aspect of yet to come. And Peter says it's certain. It's the same phrase, in fact, from verse 17. There will be a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter says it again. And this is going to be the fulfillment of of all the promises that Jesus has made. It's going to be the fulfillment of, of rewards for what you've done. It's going to be a glorified body, a new body, and it's going to be eternity with him in heaven. And Peter says to you and I, fix your hope on that. That's the command of Peter to the pilgrim passing through. You know, those traveling that that Oregon Trail, they, they had to think ahead. They had to think forward. I mean, they could not think about today. Like, boy, I hope it's it's a sunny day today. Or boy, I, I hope that the trail's just a little smoother. I mean, that, that's no place to put your hope in the big picture. In fact, that's the kind of thing that you and I do when we put our hopes on what is momentary or temporal, when we put our hopes in anything but Jesus Christ and the grace to come. And what Peter is saying here is that when you do this, if you get this, when you adjust that dial, He says, make sure you put your hope completely. Do not hold back. Some may have a tendency to hold back a bit. Perhaps we've been burned by other people or by promises made. Maybe we're somewhat untrusting. Maybe we're not completely sure if this whole Jesus thing is real. Peter says, give your hope, give all of your hope, give all of your mind, have it completely set on that grace to come. I'd say this, verse 13, this is a call for you and I to fix our minds on our salvation. It is a call to disciplined thinking. Preparation, sobriety. This preparation involves some inventory, doesn't it? It involves crawling upstairs and going around the attics of our minds and thinking about some things that shouldn't belong there. 
We need to stop holding on to them and keeping them. It means taking stock of of what we spend our time dwelling on, thinking about. We know, after all, how we think is how we are. This sober-mindedness, then, secondly, it involves some intention. It doesn't happen automatically. And this whole idea of being sober-minded or clear-thinking, this may be easier for some people than others, or there may be some seasons that are more difficult than others. But again, if we're watching the door on this, if we're keeping an eye on the gate, what comes in and what doesn't, it's going to make this whole idea of fixing our hopes a lot easier. So to travel the trail well, keep your hope fixed on the grace to come. Secondly, to travel the trail well, be holy in all you do. Verses 14 through 16, to travel the trail well, be holy in all you do. As obedient children, Peter says, do not be conformed to those former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And as we mentioned before, we have again here a command. One command in those verses, it's the second command in our passage. And what Peter does here is he uses a contrast to drive home the force of that command. And he makes a contrast between the lives we used to live and the lives we are now to live. Verse 14, notice, it begins with a very important label. Obedient children. And this language here, it speaks to the identity of the Christian. If you recall, when we began this book, early on in 1 Peter, we learned of the believer's new identity. We are now in Jesus Christ, with all, that, all that's involved. And one of these new truths is that we are now children of a father. We are children of God. In verse 2, God the Father chose us. In verse 3, God the Father caused us to be born again. So what has happened is, is we've had this new birth, and we now have a new identity as a result of it. That's fundamental to our new identity Obedience is fundamental to that new identity. If you look back again in verse 2, God chose us to obey Jesus Christ. And now, Peter writing in verse 14, he almost assumes the fact, doesn't he? He calls his Christians obedient children. Obedience can be hard, can it? We know it's going to be imperfect. But the point he makes is that it should be different than before. On part number one of our contrast is verse 14. The first aspect of it, Peter writes of the former life. He's going to contrast the new life to this former life. He speaks of that time before we are Christians. In that time, the non-Christian lives according to the desires that are emerging from the heart. These are desires that are happening in ignorance that means that the unbeliever could maybe have an ignorance of God, who he is or his ways. That could even mean that there's some loose ideas about who God is, or on the other end of that, it could even be like a deliberate rejection and a willful ignorance of who God might be. But as a result of this, 
the lusts or the desires, they pretty much rule the day. What seems right in the eyes of the person is right for the person. Say it another way, maybe the the horse is leading the rider, the horse having blinders, and driven about by its nature with the, 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 the bit in the mouth directed by the bridle, which is the fallen human heart. The word in our passage, the word lust, actually means desires, and the word itself is pretty neutral. There's places in the Bible where it can be used in a positive sense. What does Paul say? My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's a great desire, Paul. There it's used in a positive sense. It's the same word from our passage. But most of the time, it's used in more of a negative sense. And you get that from the way Peter is using it. In English, when this happens, it's translated as lust. And this certainly applies to sexual desires, but it applies more broadly than that. It can be a lust or a desire for just about anything. You see, the non-believer is just led about by these various impulses and, and, and fallen instincts. We call them the appetites of the fleshly nature. And these, these drives or these instincts, they can fall anywhere along the spectrum. There can be certain sins that, that we and the world alike, we would decry and, and, and we would say, those are evil, those are dark. But there's also ones that are socially acceptable and even prized. You, you think about the, the wealthy man of Wall Street, but maybe driven by greed and self-importance. Those things can can drive a man. He can be successful in the eyes of the world, but he can still be fallen and driven about by desires that aren't from God. Sometimes we would say that sin dresses in rags and sometimes it dresses in suits. But something has happened to the believer. That's Peter's point. Verses 3 through 12 discuss what's happened. These things, those things, are now former lusts. They're former desires. The indwelling Holy Spirit has given the Christian power to break their hold. And we no longer conform to them. They don't get to mold us or put their stamp on our lives. Not like before. Peter will write in chapter 4, verse 3, that the time already is past. It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. And that leads us to the second half of our contrast. Verse 15, he writes about the new life. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You see, there ought to be some striking resemblance between the father and the child. We should be able to go around and see the image of the father in our brothers, and in our sisters. The world should be able to detect some resemblance of the Father in his children. The Holy One who called you in this passage is the one true God. It's the God of the universe. It's God your Father. And the Holy One has holy ones, plural. You and and me. God is holy. He is majestic. He is separate. He is pure. 
God is majestic. He, he possesses a greatness not found in anything, anywhere in the created order. And God is separate. He is utterly unlike you and utterly unlike me. God is distinct and God is unique. And God is pure. He is sinless. He is perfect. There is no moral impurity in God at all. And you and I, with this new nature, are to be holy as God is holy. You see, we learn here that God is to be our aim. God is to be our role model. God is the bar for new living. He has set the standard for greatness, and greatness is founded in God. And you and I are also called to be separate, to be set apart or set aside from that former life, from this present world. Listen to how Paul attaches adoption as children to a holiness or separatistness, if that's a word. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Paul attaches this idea of being holy and separate to being adopted children of God. And we know holiness means purity. We're to be pure. In other words, God wants us to stop sinning. It's the question Paul posed in Romans. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And notice in verse 16 that this command is grounded in the very words spoken by God of himself. Just imagine God speaking these words to you. I mean, if you could hear him audibly speaking, the audible voice of God, a loving father, you shall be holy as I am holy. What verse 16 does is it it points us back to the Old Testament. We see that cue there, that that indicator. He says, because it is written, that points to, to Scripture. It points back to the Old Testament in this time. And there's a couple of different ideas about where Peter got this passage from, but Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, seems to be the leading candidate. And I'm going to read two verses to you, and you can determine for yourself. But in that passage, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we have in that passage the aspects of holiness we just defined. All three of them, there's a majesty about that. God reminds them that, that he brought them up out of Egypt in the Exodus event. There's a separation involved. The word is consecration, meaning set aside or set apart. And there's a purity even. He's he's calling them not to eat those things which are forbidden. And because of God's perpetual, pervasive holiness, because everything that belongs to him must be holy, 
The book of Leviticus is going to go on and detail this. In the book of Leviticus, everything that belongs to God becomes holy. In the book, this includes altars and assemblies and animals. It includes tunics, turbans, trees. It includes priests and people, names and nations, their houses, their fields, their offerings, their gifts, even their years. Things which belong to God are holy, things including you. God calls you to be holy. Those who are declared holy are to now go and live as holy. To travel the trail well, as we've said, we are to be holy in all we do. But let me ask you something. When you think about this idea, what comes to mind? What does it look like to be holy? Two miles off the southern coast of England lies an island, the island of White. It's a beautiful collection of buildings on this island. It's a beautiful collection of buildings called the Core Abbey. And they house a group of men. These men call themselves the Benedictine monks. Rising at 4.50 in the morning, one takes his jug down the stone hallway to fill it with water, hot water, to fill his bedroom basin. At 5.30 a.m., the morning vigils retell the psalms. Breakfast is about an hour later, a bowl of tea, a piece of bread, and some marmalade. There's then a second service and a reading of the scriptures, then a 9 a.m. mass. Chores fill the rest of the morning. Dinner gives way to fellowship at 5 p.m., the Vesper service. This is, by the way, the sixth service of the day. It offers praise to God. At 7 p.m., supper includes more readings. At 8 p.m., that service concludes the day, and then it's time for bed. That's a common way to view holiness. So should this be our lives? Is this what Peter is calling you and I to? Is this what God has in mind when he calls the pilgrim to be holy? I would say no, it's not. First off, in verse 14, the call is to obedient children. And the first act of obedience for anybody is to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means coming to him by faith alone in Christ alone. The Catholic system of works that require faith damns that does not redeem. Secondly, we can admire one's desire to break with sin even going so far as to live on an island and to pursue purity. But Paul also has spoken to the man-made rules of religion. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, these things have an appearance of wisdom in that they promote self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but he says they are in no value, of no value, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, while you and I know that the environment, it plays some role in our purity or in our holiness, the heart is the issue. 
And when a man moves as a monk from the mainland to the abbey to live there for the rest of his life, his heart goes with him. So the good news is that you do not need to be a monk and you do not need to be a nun to be holy before God. All you need to do is to be where you are, to live where God has placed you. Whatever God has called you to, you could be a student, you could be a mom or a dad or an employee or an employer, you might be a grandparent or a teacher, but wherever you are, the call is to be separate, to live set apart, not on an island, but in the very midst of a fallen, corrupt world. We are to be holy wherever God has planted us. And you're going to look different. You're going to sound different. And you're going to act different. Because you are different. Be holy as God is holy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, the world is always tugging wanting us to conform and to be more like her. But in our hearts, in the depth of our hearts, we want to be like you, and we want to be holy. I pray for your people this morning that there would be an overriding desire for personal holiness in every heart that says no to the tug of the world every time. Lord, we can't do this alone. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. Grant us a grace to prepare our minds and to be sober and to fix our hope on our Jesus who we will one day see. And in the meantime, grant us a grace, Lord, to be holy as you are holy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.